Hey guys, how y'all doing? Uh, Jeff mentioned that I was kind of sick. I was not going to tell y'all because I was afraid I would rant if I told you. My wife had kind of the flu bug uh, earlier in the week and I thought that I made it out scot-free and then last night, you know how your body just starts reeling when you got to express yourself? Well, that was happening with me, and I was like, man, this is tough anyway. So I woke up about 6.30 in the morning, and I was like, man, this is all bad. And then I text kind of some people on staff and Jeff, and I said, what do you do if you have to throw up when you're on stage? Do you bring a bucket? Do you just plan an escape route? And he was like, both. So I have an escape route. Uh, we'll see if I make it through. I'm feeling pretty good, but I have this right here just in case I need to sit down. Uh, so thank you for your patience with me if I'm, if I'm up and down. Um, So as you see right here, as we've mentioned this morning, uh, we're fresh out of Valentine's Day. And that's something that I want to sort of live in the vein of this morning. So my sermon is entitled, This is Love. And we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Look at y'all. Jeff's indoctrination over the past six weeks for you guys to bring your Bibles has really worked out well. You guys went right to it. Uh, Just another encouragement for you guys to bring a Bible to church with you. It can be physical. It can be digital. We don't care. Um, And obviously, for everyone who doesn't have their Bible this morning, welcome, because it must be your first time. We're so glad that you joined us. Uh, For you first-timers, we're going to have the text up on the screen. Um, But if it's not your first time, don't you dare look at the screen this morning. So place a mark there. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Uh, We are going to make our way there. Uh, But, well, and also just to kind of let you guys know what I'm doing. We're going to touch on six points within This is Love. Um, And they're going to pop up here on the screen. Uh, We're going to look at This is Love perceived, proclaimed, personified, propitiated, prioritized, and perfected. And you guys are like pulling up the Webster Dictionary app on your phone right now. Uh, So we're going to look at those P's. So as I go through this, you'll kind of see my rhythm and see where I'm going. And you'll also be able to have a time marker uh, to know how long I'm going to be before I'm finished. I'll spend more time on the first probably four before I'll spend on the last two. So don't think that that's an indication of how long we're going to be in here So just so you know that. So first, we're going to look at love perceived, perception, what we think of love. Um, And I want to to consider what our society thinks about love before we consider what the scriptures say about love. I think that that is very important. We are all part of a post-Christian America. And whether we accept the convictions of our culture uh, or the ideas of our society or we deny them, I think that we kind of carry them with us. Again, just because it's part and parcel of who we are as Americans. Um, So I want to consider some of the things that our society thinks about love before we look at the scripture. And in anticipation of Valentine's Day, towards the latter part of this week, there was a hashtag trending on Twitter. It was hashtag love in four words. Raise your hand if you tweeted something out under that hashtag. We got just a couple people. All right. Um, So it was trending. It was popular. A lot of people were grabbing onto it. uh, And I have gathered a few of the tweets that I saw using that hashtag, and I want to share them with you. 
So the first one, love in four words, representing people's ideas about what love is, is let's go shoe shopping. That's the very first tweet that I grabbed. And I was talking with uh, Jeff at the office this week as I was preparing, and he didn't know that Amy had a Twitter account, his wife. Uh, So if you guys want to follow Amy, that should be her handle right there. The next one, money, cash, wealth, prosperity, love in four words. This is an idea that someone expressed to represent love. Another one, will you marry me? Four words, will you marry me, representing love. And I forgot to edit this one when I sent it over to the guys on the slide team. Uh, So I told him this morning, hey, we got to edit that, don't forget. So the next one is, love is bull, fill in the blank. Someone tweeted that, representing love. Love is BS. Lastly, come into my playroom. A tweet representing love in four words. Now, I want to draw your attention to what I see here. Specifically, what our society says or thinks about love. Again, this is love perceived, what we think about love as a society. First, society says that love is stuff. Let's go shoe shopping. So much of America is built on and perpetuated within consumerism. I buy into it myself. Uh, So naturally, a lot of people think that love is stuff. Let's go shoe shopping. Next, society says love is status, money cash, wealth, prosperity. Society says, love is someone. Will you marry me? Society is skeptical of love. Love is BS. They don't buy into it. They push back on it. Lastly, society says, love is sex. Come into my playroom. I don't know if you guys picked up on this. The tweet is actually in reference to the Fifty Shades of Grey film, which debuted earlier this week and then made its national debut this weekend. Uh, I I checked in this morning to see, I've I've kind of been intrigued by how much money or how well received the film was going to be. So I've been checking in kind of day after day to see how much has been made at the box office. By the end of this weekend, in America alone, it's estimated that that film will make $91 million dollars. In the first weekend debuting. Overseas, this weekend, estimated $158 million, $260 million in one weekend around the world for people viewing Fifty Shades of Grey. And again, the film is a rendition of of an erotic romance novel, which is also a trilogy that as of February of last year had already sold more than 100 million copies. I tried diligently. You might have checked me on Twitter or on Facebook. I was trying to find a more current amount or more current sales figure than that, but they don't have one. So a year ago, over 100 million copies had already been sold. Arguably, more than anything else, sex is what our society equates with love. Sex is what our society says, this is love. You see the third sign over here. Jeff talks about these a lot. The third sign is unlearn, a value, a conviction of city church. When we come to the text, we have all kinds of ideas already with us. 
uh, beliefs, things that we think are true. And we have to constantly be in the process of unlearning not only what our society says, like this morning, considering what love is. We have to unlearn what America says, what we think socially about love, so that we can get what the text says. But we also have to unlearn oftentimes what we learn in church to be able to accept the truth of the Scripture. I hope you guys will join in us as we continue to unlearn and learn the truth of the Scripture together. So now that we've considered what our society says about love, thinks about love, we'll go to the Scripture to see what Scripture says about love. Again, we're at 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. I'll read it in, in whole, and then we'll kind of pick it apart a little bit. We're at the second part of verse 8. Which says, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So we start with verse 8. This is love proclaimed. We've considered love perceived. This is love proclaimed. John, writing this letter, proclaims God is love. It's clear, it's concise, and it's cutting. That is his proclamation. John is summarizing the essence of God, his nature, his character, Who he is. God is love. He doesn't pick out other attributes of God, which are not only in Scripture, but so popular in our culture nowadays. He says God is love. The Greek word that John uses there, I know you guys have probably heard of the word, is agape, meaning affection, goodwill, love, benevolence, or in other words, a desire to do good to others. God is the desire to do good to others. Now people say, hold up. What about the God of the Old Testament? There is no desire to do good to others in the Old Testament. I was texting a friend of mine just this week. It's the exact conversation that we were having. Uh, Interestingly, he and I haven't kicked it too much. We haven't spent a lot of time with each other. Uh, So I'm just fascinated the depth of which conversations can exist on text message, even though you haven't really hung out anyway. So he was just going at it, man. He was like, this is who I see in the Old Testament. This is who God is. And his point was that the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, he literally said this, is one of the most brutal gods of all religious texts. I said, word, tell me about that. And he pointed out a couple of instances. And I'm sharing with you what he shared with me. Uh, He talked about laws for stoning people for seemingly frivolous offenses. Laws considering, uh, or I'm sorry, condoning slavery and even rape. The plight of Job. The requirement for Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. The slaughter of entire cities. The murder of nearly all humanity in the flood. My friend is saying there's a distinction between this God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, and this God who's in the New Testament, Jesus. They're not the same. They're different. And I understand what he's saying. I really do. 
but I think it's incomplete at best. I don't think he has a full, entirely well-rounded view or understanding of the instances that he was sharing with me. I don't have time this morning uh, to get into kind of rebuttaling each point, uh, but a singular and oversimplified response, this is what I'll say. John proclaims that God is love. That's the lens that John gives us to see and to understand all of God's activity. His activity, his behavior, his character in the New Testament. His activity, his behavior, his character in the Old Testament. He's saying see through that lens to understand who he is. We don't have kids, so I don't speak as a parent. But I have noticed, and again, this is kind of an oversimplified example. I have noticed that love can be at the very center of a parent punishing their child. Equally, love can be at the very center of a parent gifting or rewarding their child. This is love proclaimed, that God is love. Next, verse 9. This is love personified. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Again, this first love in verse 9 is agape, affection, goodwill, benevolence. In other words, a desire to do good to others. And manifest means to make visible or to make known that which was previously hidden. Last night, my wife manifested a Valentine's Day gift for me. It came out of nowhere. It had previously been hidden, and then it was manifest. It was made known. So prior, it had been hidden. And I don't know where it was hidden, but it was always in her possession. She always had it. She always owned it, even when it was hidden from me. Hold on to that little nugget in your pocket. We're going to come back to that. And then live, zao, to enjoy real life. I want to read this verse again with those meanings in place of the words. And let's just give an ear to it. In this... The desire to do good to others of God was made visible or known, which had previously been hidden among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might enjoy real life through him. A few weeks ago, I preached about abundant life and eternal life. And I see the culmination of those offers of Jesus, both the offer of eternal life by believing And the offer of abundant life by obeying, culminating in this zao, in this real life, this enjoyment of real life, which is only truly found in Jesus. If you want to enjoy real life, life that is true, as it was meant to be, we must follow and find it in Jesus. So eternal life and abundant life culminate into this zao, the enjoyment of real life in the person of Jesus because he is love personified. He is love personified. And I'm not saying that there aren't life-giving imitations out there. They're everywhere. They're abundant all over the place. They say, accept me, buy me, get me, and I will give you real life. I will give you enjoyment. I will give you pleasure. And often... What those imitations look like is stuff, status, someone, and sex, right? And I don't know that 
I might be the only one, but my dabblings in those things, stuff, status, someone, and sex, left me skeptical about love. I was skeptical about did it exist, was it real, was it possible? So if you're here this morning and you've either dabbled with trying to find love and stuff and status and someone and sex, or you're like fully delved in to trying to find love and stuff, status, someone and sex, I want you to know that you're not the only one. And I also want you to know that you're never going to find it in those things because those things are not the source of love. They were not made to satisfy you. They will make you insatiably desiring more and more and more. You will not be able to find love or satisfaction in those things. I thought of a C.S. Lewis quote as I came upon that point. He says, if you find yourself with the desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. You were made for something else. We seek endlessly to be satisfied by all these little trinkets on earth, and we never find our satisfaction in them. Possibly, could you be made for more than what you are seeking satisfaction and love in? Colossians 1.16 says, Each of us were made through Jesus and for Jesus. You, I, the believer, the non-believer, made for Jesus, made through Jesus. This is love personified, Jesus himself. Verse 10 This is love propitiated. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. Say that word with me on three. One, two, three. Propitiation. It's kind of a funky word. Any ideas on what propitiation means? You can shout them out. Place taking? Anything else? All right. Hey, a silent answer, I guess, is better than a wrong answer, so I ain't mad at you. Uh, So, propitiation means satisfaction. So, I want to read verse 10 again with satisfaction in the place of propitiation. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins. If you felt that verse 9 didn't really apply to you, that you don't really look for love or try to find satisfaction or pleasure or enjoyment in stuff or status or someone or sex, I really want you to hear this. Because you probably consider yourself a good person. You say, I don't relate to that verse 9. I don't do that. I'm too good for that. And the most blind of good people are people who think that they're good because of their religion. So hear this. Our sin requires propitiation. Say it with me one more time. One, two, three. Propitiation. Our sin requires propitiation. It requires satisfaction. The cost of our sin, our error, our rebellion is life. The wage of sin is death. God is a God without sin. He's a God without rebellion. He's a God without error. And he, in all of eternity, even before humanity was created, the earth was created, he exists in absolute harmony, fellowship, holiness with himself, with his triune self. 
and sin, error, and rebellion produces death and destruction and chaos, which opposes the life and the perfection and the order that has always been in God and sustained by God. But a lot of people say to err is human. It's just natural. We all fall short. We're all a sinner. Tupac, only God can judge me. I mean, that was my gospel when I was a kid. Don't throw shade at me. Don't style on me. Don't tell me that I'm wrong. You're wrong. You don't have any right to tell me what I am when you are as well. To err is human. But I would argue that to err was not originally human. That is not how we were made. We were not made in sin. We were not made in error. God made all things, including man and woman. And when that was complete, he looked at it and said, this is very good. Do we think about humanity, God's relationship with humans, that he first put a stamp of approval on us? This is very good. To err is human, but not originally. Man and woman enjoyed fellowship with the God of eternity in time, on earth. The eternal fellowship, harmony, And unity that was in God. God walked with man and woman in the cool of the evening. Immense intimacy. Once I read that scripture, it's kind of never left my mind. And I've talked about this before, but one of my favorite things to do is to go on a walk with my wife after we have dinner. God walked with man and woman in the cool of the evening. This is what each of us were made for. But sin affected that. I want to draw our attention to something that crystallized this week as I studied. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, before they were drove out of the garden and their interpersonal relationship and intimacy with God was affected, it's easy to miss what Genesis 3.21 says. We'll pull it up on the screen here. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And it was like an aha moment. I read my Bible a lot. I don't get aha moments a lot. But I tell people, read your Bible, because eventually you'll get an aha moment. So that light popped on for me. This was the first propitiation. The wage of sin is death. God himself was sinned against by Adam and by Eve. They offended him. One thing, they had one rule to follow. One. And they couldn't keep it. They couldn't do it. They disobeyed. They sinned. But God made up for their sin. He satisfied for their sin. He made propitiation for their sin. By killing animals. By taking the life of innocent animals. And not only did he propitiate, did he satisfy the debt of that sin. But look how kind he is. He made garments out of the skins to cover up Adam and Eve as they were sent out. Of the garden. He clothed them. What a kind and compassionate and graceful and merciful God from the very beginning of the Old Testament. Please don't miss what happened before the fall. Don't miss what happened with God and man, that He existed in an intimate personal relationship with them. And even when they fell short, He was not pleased to allow them to sit and to wallow in their sin. He made satisfaction, propitiation for their sin. And then he extended even more grace and mercy and covered them up as he sent them out. 
And of course, this first propitiation, and this was the aha moment for me, it was just a foreshadow of the final propitiation, the final satisfaction that God would extend on behalf of sinners in the life and death of his son. Because just like my wife, she possessed the Valentine's gift that was hidden until she revealed it, but she always possessed it. This was a foreshadow. The first propitiation was a foreshadowing of the final propitiation because Jesus, in essence, has always belonged to God. He always intended to extend the gift, to reveal, to manifest the gift of Jesus to humanity, to propitiate, to satisfy for the debt of our sins. This is love propitiated. Say it with me one more time. One, two, three. Propitiated. Verse 11. This is love prioritized. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And thankfully, these are the last two points that I'm going to go through a little bit more quickly. Beloved. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you have believed in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that is a word that you need to understand your identity through. Beloved, beloved, God adores you. He loves you. He cares for you. Even if you don't think that you're lovable, even if you don't think that there's anything lovely in you, God has bestowed that identity upon us, beloved by God. If you believe, you are beloved. Again, even and especially when you don't feel lovable, when you don't feel lovely. This one another in verse 11 specifically refers to fellow Christians, beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, other Christians, other believers in Jesus. And how hard that can be to do sometimes, right? I mean, it's like family feuds. Some of the hardest people to love is family. I had this, I mean, I guess it was a conviction years ago. I said, boy, if I could just love my wife all the time, how I love strangers, we'd be so much better off. I'll just pass people, say, hey, what's up to them? Give them a ride. If I see somebody on the side of the road, I'll pull off and try to help them out, jump their car, whatever. I just have all this grace and mercy for people that I don't know. Open a door. How you doing? You doing all right? But then I get home, and that same attitude doesn't apply to my wife. It can be hard to love your family. It can often be the hardest. Beloved Christians, beloved believers, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another more than judging one another and condemning one another and criticizing one another. We ought to love one another, not just because it's the Christian thing to do, but because God has done it first to allow us to see it. His loving us cost him so much more than our loving one another. We ought to love one another because... Verse 12, and this is love perfected. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When we love one another, specifically when Christians love Christians, the love of God is made complete 
in us, among us. And I don't totally get that because I don't think that the love of God is incomplete. But the scripture says that it is made complete. So we have a part in the activity of God. We have part in the love of God. He wants us to take him up on this extended offer to love one another so that something will happen with us, co-laborers, co-workers with him. And I would say that because is, and this is a word potentially for church, and I realize that some folks here are not believers, some folks who are listening by podcast or on the app or just exploring Christianity or even looking for a way to argue with me about something. So I realize not everyone believes, but if you want an unbelieving world to get God more than going out on the block and passing out tracts, more than raising money to complete projects, more than ministering, more than doing whatever Christian event there is, if you want an unbelieving world to see God, to get God, to get that his nature, his character, his essence is love, the best way that we Christians can do that is if we extend that same agape love to one another. I heard years ago that nothing unites like the gospel. The gospel is ours as believers. We're within it. It's the good news to us that we have accepted If we want a broken, a hurt, a non-believing world to see God, we need to love one another. That is the greatest form of evangelism that it is. Why? Because it's hard to love one another. It's hard to love your family. But when we prioritize that, we show off the love of God to a non-believing world. Just like these dedicated parents, uh, or the parents that dedicated their babies. The, the most influential way that you will witness to your child is through your life. The most influential way that we will manifest, make known the love of God is by loving one another. Love requires strength. It is not weak. So often I hear that God is not love because people perceive love as a weak thing. Anyone who is potentially married in a committed relationship, committed to their business, committed to an endeavor, knows that when you set your love on something, your affection on something, it costs you. Love is not weak. Love is strong. And the world system is so lacking love. It offers all sorts of substitutes in the place of love, stuff, and status, and someone, and sex, and people become skeptical because those things don't satisfy. A bit earlier in this letter, and I come to a conclusion with this, John wrote at 1 John 2, 2, if you want to jot that down and look at it later, he said that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus is not uniquely ours. We don't have a monopoly on him, on his good work, on the gift of his cross and the gift of his life. He died not only for us believers, but for the whole world. So think about that dude at work, that girl in class, that neighbor that you can't stand. And it ain't not Christian to not be able to stand someone. <laughs> not standing people is a part of our humanity. It's o- I don't know that it's okay. I don't want to condone it. But it's reality. So think about that person. Because the scripture says that Jesus died for that person. It is your opportunity to love them. 
as Christ loved you. It is our opportunity to love one another, and by doing so, to show off, to reveal, to manifest the love of God to a broken and blind world. You guys pray with me? Uh, Lord, you are uh, so good and so kind and so gracious and merciful and patient with me uh, first and certainly towards humanity. Uh, God, I thank you that uh, your love is so strong. The commitment of your love uh, knows no extent. You have manifested, shown your love at the cost of your son's life. That needs to define and to dictate and be the lens through which we see and understand and talk about and laugh about and joke about love. Lord, please help us elevate love to its proper position so that we can understand it properly. Uh, Allow us, Lord, to see that we are beloved in Christ, that your affections are fixed towards us, Uh, so that we can love ourselves and in turn love our neighbor, Uh, allow us to love one another and to realize the great opportunity that loving one another uh, will invite into a broken and a blind world. Lord, thank you for your love. Um, Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.